introduce myself. Uh, my name is Claire Bennett. I'm a research fellow at the um, Centre for Population Change at the University of Southampton, and I work alongside Professor Derek McGee. Um, and we're going to talk to you about uh, the assisted voluntary term programme in the UK, but particularly focusing on how does the receipt of government funding impact on the relationship, advocacy, and independence of the refugee sector. And this is part of a, a wider research project that we did. So just to tell you a bit about the research project, um, as I mentioned, it was a joint project. And one of the things that Derek and I were quite interested in was something that we kind of refer to as this insider perspective, and particularly looking at the relationship between the Home Office and refugee and asylum NGOs, and, and particularly around the receipt of government funding as well. We wanted to look at the Choices Programme. As many of you know, um, AVR is, is quite a controversial issue in the UK. Uh, Refugee Action fund the Choices Programme. It's their programme. Sorry, Refugee Action run it. The Home Office fund that programme in an entirety. And uh, they receive um, funding from the European Return Fund. As part of this uh, research, we did an online survey and this was with uh, 50 individuals completed the online survey and they were representatives from a range of uh, migrant, refugee, asylum, community-based organisations. These were people that weren't involved in delivering AVR but had views around the AVR programme. Um, and it was quite interesting in terms of eliciting kind of broader perspectives on, on AVR across the sector. Um, alongside that, we also interviewed 60 individuals. Um, these were individuals from national and international NGOs, uh, the Home Office, UNHCR, IOM, and we also worked with uh, welfare officers in detention centres. We had access to three detention centres, which was Colnbrook, Harmonsworth and Hasler. Um, it was a nine-month project uh, from March to December last year. Uh, we're still very much doing the analysis now as well. But just to give you a bit of background in terms of this presentation today, um, I'm going to provide a bit of background on the AVR programme. I'm not going to go into the intricacies of the AVR programme, as I know many of you here are kind of uh, working on AVR, and you know around different kind of eligibility criteria, for example. But for anybody who doesn't know that, I'll signpost you in terms of where you can get that information from. We're going to examine some of our findings from the research, um, but particularly we're going to focus on the Home Office and Refugee Action's um, perspectives on funding, partnerships and advocacy. Um, and then we'll end with um, some kind of points for further discussions. And so the AVR programme, as many of you know, there's three types of AVR in the UK. Um, that's the VARP programme, which is the Voluntary Assistance for Return and Reintegration for Asylum Seekers. Um, alongside this, there's the um, AVRIM, which is the programme for irregular migrants, and also in April 2010, the um, programme for families and children was introduced. As I mentioned, these programmes are all delivered by Refugee Action uh, under their Choices programme. For each of these programmes, there's a range of eligibility criteria, um, and there's different kind of financial assistance and return and reintegration packages. Um, there's all this information is available on the Choices website, so if you want more information on that, please do look at their website. It's very helpful. And it also outlines the whole application process as well. Uh, to give you a bit of background information, in the UK, um, approximately 3,500 people return each year onto the Choices programme. 
IOM used to deliver the uh, AVR programme in the UK. Up until 2011, when Refugee Action won the, um, well, awarded the contract, probably won is the wrong term. Um, and um, IOM is still the main provider of AVR internationally and, and across Europe. What was quite interesting about Refugee Action gaining the contract in 2011 is that it was the first NGO to um, deliver the AVR programme from end to end. So this is not only providing the um, advice, which they used to do, but they used to be subcontracted to do that with IOM, but actually being involved in the return and reintegration overseas. So for Refugee Action, this also involved developing international partnerships and um, programmes overseas. So across Europe, IOM are the main agent, but what's quite interesting at the moment is some new AVR models are starting to emerge, where NGOs are increasingly getting involved in different aspects of AVR. And also some, some countries' social services are, are getting involved as well. But um, Refugee Action is still the only NGO to deliver the whole programme in its entirety. So issues around AVR remain a controversial area. Um, there is a, a, a school of thought, for example, um, that believes that kind of refugee asylum organisations in the UK should not be involved in the return programme. Um, and so it is a kind of controversial issue, and that was also one of the reasons that we wanted to look at it. So where does this fit in relationship to debates on the funding issue? There's, a, there's still um, different school of thought in terms of the UK, in terms of the receipt of government funding. Some NGOs, for example, don't want to receive um, government funding. It's a quite a strategic decision. They, they, they feel it will affect their independence. Other organisations do receive government funding. And um, particularly since the new Labour government and the kind of contract culture that kind of emerged and the role of the third sector, which emerged during that time, um, increasingly refugee and asylum organisations are receiving and bidding and tendering to run different government services and to receive government funding for that. But there's been, um, over the last kind of 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of academic debates around this role. And ultimately, kind of questions such as, you know, to what extent are NGOs really non-governmental? Um, and so Hayes in 2005, and he was very much writing in response to um, the role of refugee NGOs working on the NAS programme in the UK. You know, and he writes, the sector that has to chase money and resources for future survival is not surprisingly that monies have been accepted with conditions. Conditions concerning surveillance, control and cooperation with the Home Office are not uncommon now for organisations working with asylum seekers and refugees. So he was very kind of cynical about the role that accepting government funding or, or running government services has on the independence of the refugee sector. And this has also led to academic concerns, as, you know, to what extent are NGOs doing the dirty work? And again, as I mentioned, this is all very much in relation to, to the role of the NAS programme some years ago. And um, Zeta talks about these partnerships, even though they can be very productive, but they can also be very directive. And again, Hayes, who is obviously very cynical and very critical of these relationships, um, writes about that alarm bells should be sounding about the implications of these partnerships. So this aside, we wanted to kind of look at this, this role and, and the role of advocacy, the role of, of funding, but also to contextualise it within the AVR programme. And as I mentioned, AVR is a very kind of controversial decision. And when we spoke to Refugee Action, we wanted to kind of understand more about why they wanted to take on um, the AVR programme, uh, which was funded by the Home Office. And here you can see from one of the senior managers 
that one of the key things around um, taking on the AVR programme was that there was a lot of internal debate, there was a lot of internal discussions around that. And very much the feedback that came back from Refugee Action was it was something that their clients wanted them to do um, because they were viewed as an independent organisation and they could give them independent advice. And again, this, this quote from the senior managers also talks about the, the importance of them maintaining their independence. They were non-directive and that they could offer impartial advice around return. Um, so this kind of very much became part of Refugees' Action's ethos as they presented up to us. They presented a, that they were part of this ethical service delivery. They were working because they understood their clients' needs and that they were independent from the government. And indeed, if you look at Refugee Action Choices programme on the website, it's, you know, it talks about we are a charity, we're not the government. There's a very clear separation. Um, so this kind of position, refugee action, is this trusted intermediary, intermediary. And interestingly, this is also how the Home Office talked about refugee action as well. And the Home Office very much talked that refugee action was an organisation that refugees and asylum seekers and migrant communities could trust. Um, and, and here there's also there was an acknowledgement that these groups were very suspicious and distrusting of the government. So without refugee action, the Home Office wouldn't have access to this group as well. And this is also recognised by refugee action themselves um, in those two quotes there. So refugee action became, um, they presented themselves as a very client-centred organisation. And what was important to them was that they were non-directive. And it was very much <coughs> part of their, their identity and their ethos. Um, to be, in order to actually meet the needs of their clients and maintain the confidence of their clients. They needed to be separate, they needed to be independent. Um, and this was really important to them because this was part of why they justified delivering the AVR programme. And also, they were very aware of the unsatisfactory conditions of the programme. They were aware of the destitution, they were aware of the vulnerabilities of this group, they were aware around the difficulties of choices and the importance of this decision but very much they felt that they were the best organisation because they knew these complexities that could represent um, refugees and well, asylum seekers and irregular migrants. But within this context, however, it's important to acknowledge that the motivations and the drivers behind the Home Office were very different to refugee actions. And um, when we talk to the Home Office, very much their motivations around AVR is around delivering high numbers of compliant returns. And, you know, AVR is presented as something that's very cost-effective. So I'll pass over to my colleague Derek now, who unpicks <coughs> this issue further. But what are the potential risks of, uh, of NGO-state partnerships? That, this is one of the big themes that we've been exploring. Uh, NGOs have been accused of chasing uh, government funding. Uh, they've been accused of being overly re reliant on state funding. Um, NGOs, this is all in uh, social policy, sociological and organisational literatures really, uh, there's also been concerns that their, their work has been diverted uh, into more fundable <coughs> areas, um, excuse the coughing, <coughs> and this can lead to competition between NGOs. Uh, there's also structural or isomorphic risks uh, associated, associated with this. In the literatures, we have concerns about uh, professionalisation, formalisation, uh, that NGOs end up completely being restructured. And actually, uh, Refugee Action did have to restructure on taking on uh, the AVR grant considerably and uh, completely develop a whole international partnership. Uh, across the world with other NGOs uh, for their reintegration services. 
Um, in terms, there's also mimicry, uh, concerns about mimicry that uh, NGOs could start to mimic uh, the habits and characteristics of the dominant partner, etc. Uh, they can experience mission drift as well, and they, as a consequence, they can lose their independent identity. So these are some, some of the risks. Um, <clears throat> as we know, the, the AVR Choices Programme is funded by a grant. It isn't actually a contract. Um, and this uh, appears to give <coughs> refugee action uh, some autonomy, and actually quite a, a great deal of, of autonomy. In our interviews with the, the, the Home Office, they, they were the ones that really pointed this out to us. They said, it's a grant agreement, it's not a contract, which is, again, this might sound like semantics, this is quoting from the Home Office, but a grant agreement, in effect, is a gift. It gives a significant amount of autonomy to refugee action. Um, it also means that the Home Office can't turn around and, uh, and impose penalties on refugee action if, <coughs> if they haven't actually done what they've, they've said. Uh, they will do. Uh, the quote I have in front of me is, it's more of a matter of, you said you would do this, here's some money, please do it, according to the Home Office. Now, the Home Office had a lot of interesting things to say um, about refugee actions autonomy, but what we found even more interesting were their views on NGOs who actually work within the system. Now, we had a, a huge quote on this, but uh, we haven't included it. Um, the Home Office <coughs> acknowledges that refugee action isn't a government lapdog like some other organisations, um, but they also came up with some very <coughs> interesting uh, terminology in terms of who are the relevant NGOs and who are the NGOs with weighty advocacy. And this was more a case of the NGOs who actually worked with the Home Office in the system were seen as relevant and those uh, NGOs were also seen as having weighty advocacy, and we thought this was extremely interesting. Now, there's a great deal of academic concern about what we call coercive isomorphism, in terms of advocacy chill and uh, advocacy deficits, especially when NGOs are actually funded uh, to provide services uh, for the government. Uh, can they challenge the government? Can they bite the hand that feeds them? These are the sort of broader questions that we've been looked into. We've looked into. From our uh, survey with a range of NGOs and charities working in the sector, 67% uh, stated that government NGO partnerships are actually beneficial to both NGOs and government. 26% thought, uh, believed that these partnerships primarily benefited uh, government departments. I wonder if this survey was done five or ten years ago, whether that percentage would have actually changed. This is something we could perhaps discuss. Um, <clears throat> in terms of advocacy chill as a consequence of government funding, one of our participants from the Refugee Council this time actually <coughs> talked about a mature understanding between government and NGOs, protected by the compact that we're all aware of, um, and that NGOs who actually are service deliverers can use the evidence from the services they deliver to actually have an impact on policy, and we're going to come on to uh, discuss this in relation to re <coughs> refugee actions refugee action even. They told us our role is to hold the government to account and to present the reality of what is going on in the ground and to do this requires both kinds of advocacy 
the behind-the-scenes advocacy and also the public advocacy, advocacy actually taking the Home Office to court, which they repeatedly do. Uh, another court, we are an organisation that has a lot of different strands. Uh, so we can gather evidence from our choices work, our one-stop services, and use it for our own policy work. But does this mean <coughs> that uh, refugees' actions are evidence-based behind the scenes? What does, is the question, does refugee actions, evidence-based and behind the scenes advocacy actually amount to? Well, according to our interviews with Refugee Action, this amounts to make, negotiating subtle changes with the Home Office over forms and over timing, that sort of thing. It's still advocacy, but it's, it's, it's little changes and it's subtle changes. Does being the AVR grant holder and an insider service provider lead to enhanced advocacy was one of our big questions. According to one interviewee, it would be difficult for us not to take the Home Office money. A, because it means we are able to give very good advice to people. B, because we can use the data and the research and the client experience to affect policy change. And without providing these services, this interviewee, interviewee suggested that refugee action would not have the open space between us and the Home Office. And if I've got time, I hope to come back to that. Uh, according to uh, the various typologies of state and NGO partnerships found in academic literatures, what we think is that Refugee Action's Home Office <coughs> partnership is more of a partnership variant in which NGOs enjoy a significant degree of discretion in their op operations. This seems to be a value-added partnership based on competitive advantage in terms of trust and access to NGOs, etc. However, rather than describing this as an open space between refugee action and uh, the Home Office, we describe this as a contested space. As Claire suggested, there's considerable levels of contestation in terms of drivers, motivations and ethos uh, between these organisations. And their relationship seems to be constantly negotiated or in conflict. Uh, we want to leave the themes of partnership and advocacy and funding, etc., uh, uh, behind for a while. We can come back to it in our discussion. But we just want to move on to recent events, um, and that is AVR and immigration removal centres. Now, our research findings actually expose difficulties in AVR and immigration research, uh, removal centres in terms of time frame, access to advice, removal directions already being in pro progress, etc., everything that we already know. But regardless of these difficulties, few of us would dispute that AVR and immigration uh, removal centres is extremely important. And many of the caseworkers from Refugee Action actually told us this is the, important, the most important work that they actually do. Um, however, as you know, from the 1st of April, AVR is no longer an option for detainees. And according to a briefing uh, uh, paper we received from, from the Home Office, this is the reason why. AVR has been used increasingly by de detainees. This has reduced the incentive to apply for AVR in the community and has undermined one of the main reasons for operating the programme. Detainees incur significant costs for the Home Office to locate, arrest and detain. It is therefore not appropriate that they should receive the same level of assistance as an individual who has complied with the Home Office earlier in the process. All of this leads us to questions about the language of AVR, especially the use of choices and the voluntariness of AVR and voluntary departure in general. The Home Office's uh, preference is to use 
voluntary removal rather than voluntary return. We think, well, we agree with this position that the adjective voluntary seems to de designate an absence of viable options rather than a, a deliberate choice. Um, just coming to our final comments and areas for further discussion, we need a much more nuanced debate around choice, voluntariness, compliance and justice. On advocacy, chill and uh, refugee action, well, uh, we are convinced by their two forms of advocacy based on the evidence that they uh, can uh, get from being a service provider. That is the behind-the-scenes subtle uh, negotiation of changes in terms of the AVR programme and their public challenges in the court. So being receipt of Home Office funding doesn't seem to hamper refugee action's ability to uh, be advocates for, for the wider refugee and asylum community, but this is something we can discuss. The Home Office referred to relevant and weighty NGOs in times of insiders working with them in the system. Uh, what are the implications of this categorisation uh, of, of NGOs? Uh, what's the relationship between independence and relevance? Uh, and do academic legislators need to actually catch up with this, uh, the, the nuances of the sector uh, here? All that being said, we have to recognise that there's power relations going on here. Yes, refugee action have a great deal of autonomy through the AVR grant, but the Home Office is the decision maker in terms of the tenders for AVR, and the Home Office can uh, change policy, as we've just experienced in terms of uh, assisted voluntary return and immigration removal centres. So what's the future for AVR? Um, this is an election year and the AVR tender has been extended until spring 2005. But what will happen to AVR next?